Well, today we start a new sermon series covering the book of Romans. One famous uh, Anglican preacher in England, Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached for 16 years in the book of Romans, and he never finished. He retired before he finished. He still had chapters 15 and 16 to go. The book of Romans is such a wealth of truth that its depth can be plumbed at great length. I'm not sure exactly how long our series is going to go, but rest assured, it'll be better counted in months than in years. I've heard preachers call Romans the Mount Everest of the Bible, standing the tallest and strongest in theological depth and importance. Another preacher friend of mine described it as the prime rib of the gospel, the meatiest meat, the best cut, the most flavorful, so much spiritual nutrition and enjoyment. I'm confident of two things this morning. One, the book of Romans is of such value. It is the Everest. It is the prime rib. And two, that it's the great privilege of my life to be your guide up the mountain, to be your chef at the feast of God's word as we walk together through its truth, as we eat together of its spiritual nutrition, because God is going to use the study to change all of us. See, God has specifically used this letter in amazing ways, literally changing the course of history. One of the first great theologians, Augustine, in the year 386, when he was 32 years old, went out in the garden where he was lodging, seeking solitude. He wrote, The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house, chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, saying repeatedly over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. So I heard back to the place where I had put down the book of the apostle. When I got up, I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. It was Romans 13, 13 through 14. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. I neither wished nor needed to read further, he said. At once with the, the last words of this sentence, It was as if a light of relief from all the anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubts were dispelled. It was the reading of Romans that converted the great early church father Augustine, setting off an earthquake of truth that is still reverberating to this day. It happened again in 1515. In 1505, Martin Luther became a monk entering the monastery at age 21. He wrote, if there ever was a good monk, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Monkery, that's a good word. 
Luther prayed and fasted for days. He employed many extreme aesthetic practices. He probed every resource of his contemporary Catholicism, trying to assuage the anguish of the feeling of being alienated from God, but nothing pacified his tormented conscience. He was appointed professor of Bible at Wittenberg University, teaching first from the book of Psalms, and then in 1515, starting to teach from the book of Romans. Upon studying Romans 1.15, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther wrote, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered it until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled my heart with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Another great earthquake rattled the world through the book of Romans. For on that day, the spark that lit the Reformation leapt off the pages of Romans and into the heart of Martin Luther, and the world has never been the same. Some 200 years later, on May 24, 1738, a very discouraged missionary went very unwillingly to a religious meeting in London. There a miracle took place in his heart. About a quarter before nine, he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That person was John Wesley. The message he heard that evening was from the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Just a few months before, John Wesley had written in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? That evening, in Aldergate Street, his question was answered, and the result was the great Wesleyan revival that swept across England and transformed the nation. From big spiritual earthquakes that rattled continents and nations to personal life-changing earthquakes, the book of Romans has changed so many lives. Story after story could be told, numbering in the hundreds, numbering in the thousands, in the tens of thousands, in the millions of how God has used Romans to turn lost sinners in repentance to him for salvation. Even in our day, we have a great way of presenting the gospel simply by using verses from the book of Romans. It's called the Romans Road to Salvation. 
just by using Romans, like verses 3.10 and 6.23 and 6.23 and 5.8 and 10.9 and 10 and 10.13 and even more. You can give a clear and concise presentation of the Gospels all contained in the book of Romans. So folks, imagine now the opportunity that's before us. Imagine now the joy that is set before us that we get to study the very book that has rattled the spiritual foundations of the world for 2,000 years. The same book that God used to bring Augustine and Luther and Wesley to him. The same book that continues to, to minister and change countless tens of thousands of lives coming to know Christ as our Savior. This is our adventure. This is our quest. Luther said of Romans, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it, word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of our souls. John Calvin wrote, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of the scriptures. If you're a believer here today, open your heart and take out your steak knife, right? Because we're diving into some prime rib. Deep, rich, spiritual nutrition for your soul. Take the time to read Romans. As we studied together, I got such an encouraging text this week from someone who told me that they were reading Romans and praying for me and our study together. If you have to miss a Sunday, take time to watch it on YouTube or to listen to it from our webpage. Commit to not miss out on even one course of the meal that God has for us in Romans. If you're not a follower of Christ here today, open up your heart to receive the truth. And God will do to you what he has done for so many others. And you will say, like Augustine said, it was as if a light of relief and all anxiety flooded my soul and and, and the shadows of doubt were displayed. Like Luther said, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And like Wesley said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. Oh, the spiritual adventure that lies before us. Let's now take a quick overview of Romans, a a flyover from 30,000 feet. Did you know that Romans is Paul's longest letter? And that from the beginning of the collection and ordering of the New Testament books, it stood first in a list of all of Paul's letters. First, not because it was written first, because it was not written first, but first because of its importance, first because of its value. From the very earliest days of Christianity, the book of Romans was recognized for its significance and worth. Now here's an easy one, right? Who's the author? If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, because of the typical way 
They wrote letters in the first century. Their letters started with who was sending the letter, as opposed to our letters always end with who sent the letter. Their letters always started with who sent the letter. So the very first word of the book of Romans is the name of the author. It's Paul, the great apostle Paul, the great missionary Paul. But notice, I didn't say who wrote Romans. See, it's kind of a trick question here. It's great for a Bible trivia night. Who is the author of Romans? Paul. It's, it's his letter. It's his words inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he didn't actually write down the letter of Romans. Look to Romans chapter 16 and verse 22. Romans 16, 22, and it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Paul is the author, but Tertius is the one who wrote it down on parchment. It seems that it was Paul's usual practice to, to use what's called an amanuensis. He dictated the letter as another wrote it. Several of his other New Testament letters end with him saying in the final greeting that this was written in his own handwriting. Obviously meaning that the earlier part of the letter was not written in his own handwriting. Many believe that he used an amanuensis because of his poor eyesight, probably damaged from an unspecified illness. If you look in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, it says the original occasion of Paul's preaching in Galatia was because of a body, bodily ailment that he had. And then in verse 15 it says, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Seeming to indicate that the ailment that afflicted Paul affected his eyes. So Paul's the author. Tertius was the copyist. He was the recorder. Well, how did the church in Rome start? We have no idea. Acts 2.10 specifically mentions that there were visitors from Rome who were part of the first day of the church on that day of Pentecost. Perhaps from there, when they, when they went back to Rome, they helped inaugurate and start the church. We also know the great teaching couple, uh, you know, um, Priscilla and Aquila were from Rome. I'm sure that many of the names that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16 were people that had previously ministered to that were now in Rome serving in the church and working. We know that no other apostle had been to Rome yet, so Paul felt an obligation to them as the apostle to the Gentiles to go there to teach them. Well, why did Paul write the letter? Look there in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. It gives us some information on that. Why did Paul write the letter? It says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented." in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as and the rest of the disciples. I'm, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. 
So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul didn't want to write them a letter. He wanted to see them face to face. He intended to come to Rome over and over numerous times. But he'd been prevented. God kept directing him to other places. God kept directing him to other ministries. God kept pushing him towards other missions fields. So the direct reason for the writing of this letter to Romans was because he wasn't able to go to Rome like he wanted to. I'm sure that Paul wondered why God had kept him from going to Rome. We don't have to wonder. Because God wanted him to write a letter. We're so blessed by God's plan. God preventing Paul from doing what he had hoped to do has resulted in our great and immeasurable benefit. The letter to the Romans. Oh, the majesty of God's sovereignty. What laws we would have had without the book of Romans in our Bible. What blessings we have because God prevented Paul. Have you ever thought about the blessings that have come in your life? Because God prevents something in your life? The blessings that come to you or your or family and even posterity because God didn't answer your prayer. Because God didn't give you what you hoped for. Because God prevented you from doing your plans. We have the letter to Romans because God prevented Paul from going there. So he had to write a letter instead. Oh, if we could glimpse, but glimpse the majesty of God's sovereignty, I am confident that we would not be so inclined to be so upset about what God has prevented in our lives. Maybe today you need to take a moment and thank God for all the things he's prevented in your life. Paul wanted to minister to them, to strengthen them, to reap a harvest among them, to preach the gospel in Rome. He eventually gets to Rome some years later under arrest and in the midst of a court battle for preaching the gospel. Well, another reason uh, Paul is writing to the believers in Rome is that after he delivers the financial aid that he's been collecting on his third missionary journey for the believing Jews in Jerusalem, he's planning to go to Spain. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We'll look at verses 23 and 24, and then in verses 28 and 29. 23 and 24 says, But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And then it says, When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. You see, the great missionary Paul is in part writing this letter to prepare the church in Rome to receive him, to help him, to support him to get to Spain. 
Folks, the letter of Romans is the very first missionary support letter ever written. And, and through it, we see the heart of Paul to reach the people for Christ, to go further, to go where they haven't heard the gospel before. Oh, how we need to catch that same desire to, to spread the gospel further and to go where they have never heard it before. Another reason Paul wrote Romans was that he did know some things about them. Now, even though Paul had never been to Rome, he knew a lot of believers in Rome. In chapter 16, he mentions 29 people. This shows Paul's extensive missionary ministry and contacts. Paul had some great connections to Rome. So he had some insight into the issues and into the challenges that were faced by the Roman believers. So his letter is not some generic letter of great theology, but it's a purposeful letter to help the believers in Rome. Some of the list of names are Jewish. Most of them are Gentile. The church in Rome was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, probably dominated in number by Gentile believers. So Paul is dealing with both Jewish and Gentile-related biblical truth and how it all works together into one faith in Jesus Christ. We get some great, amazingly deep doctrinal teaching on the whole Jewish and Old Testament faith and Gentile and New Testament faith and how it all works together in history and about how the the one truth comes together and the one gospel and our one Savior, Jesus Christ, for all people. Well, the key theme in Romans is the gospel itself. We'll be spending extensive time discussing the gospel from its so many different facets. It's like looking at the cut of a diamond, you know? The beauty and the cut is endless and pure. The idea in Romans is righteousness. Namely, God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. And the key verses in the letter of Romans is Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the, the righteous shall live by faith. We'd like to do these key verses. Let's say these verses together. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So much of the book of Romans is just the 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 outpouring of what that means. Now, I found this, um, this great chart. Um, it's, a, it's a summary, kind of a remake of Irving Jensen's chart. Irving Jensen was great in making these chart summaries um, of the books of the Bible. I got this off a website, you'll see it on the bottom there, called preceptaustin.org. It's a great website that has many commentaries and, and sermons 
on each book of the Bible. Now, I've made copies of this chart, and I put it on the back table. It's underneath the TV in the foyer if you'd like a copy. Now, there's great stuff on here. So if you just look, um, it gives us some great insight on how Romans is put together. Just the, right up front there, from sin to salvation to sanctification to sovereignty to service, our need for salvation, a way of salvation, a life of salvation, a scope of salvation, service of salvation. You can go down here to where righteousness is needed and righteousness credited and righteousness demonstrated, righteousness restored and righteousness applied. Or about God's righteousness and law, God's righteousness imputed, God's righteousness obeyed, God's righteousness in election and God's righteousness displayed. It's really a great little chart that, that helps us get an overview, an understanding of, of Paul's thought and how he's moving along and of uh, where we're going to be going um, through our study. We know we could go on and on and on and on about a lot more introductory stuff. But let's take these last few moments we have together and start looking at the text of Romans. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to study together verse 1. Follow along as I read, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. As Paul is introducing himself for the first time to so many of the believers in Rome, how does he do that? How does he introduce himself? First, he describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now that's not a phrase that's new to us. That's not a phrase that would be new to the Jews. Many in the Old Testament were described as servants of God, and Abraham, and Joshua, and David, and, and many others. We might even use that phrase to describe ourselves or, or someone we admire in Christ. But the Gentiles in Rome, when they read those words, they would have been amazed. Our translation most often softens the real starkness of the original word. We translate the word as servant. Or better, sometimes we'll translate it as bondservant. But the most simple and direct translation is slave. Those first century Gentile believers in Rome, when they read that first phrase, they would have read it as Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. One commentator wrote, to be a slave in the Gentile mind was to be at the bottom of the social order. Servanthood was something to escape. Freedom was a goal to attain. How arresting it must have been to the Gentile believers to learn that Paul had given up his freedom and willingly submitted himself to Christ Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Now, as we've talked about before, slavery in the Roman Empire was very common. It was usually just economic-based. It was not the racial and ethnic-based sinful slavery of America's past. You could, and many did, actually earn enough money to eventually purchase their freedom. But the reality was that while you were a slave, you were the property of another person. They owned you. They ruled you. They told you what to do. You were their slave. 
the first way that Paul describes himself, as he actually does in others of his letters, is as a slave of Christ Jesus. He is owned by Jesus. He is ruled by Jesus. He is purchased by Jesus. When Jesus told him what to do, he did it. And he did it willingly. Jesus was his master. Paul was his slave. And beloved, that was good. Paul loved his master. He was willingly binding himself to him. Not out of force, not out of cohesion, but willingly and by choice. Exodus 21, 5 and 6 talks about a slave choosing to stay with his master because he loves him. Paul was a slave that loved his master and chose to be his forever as his master so loved him. Slave connotes total devotion. He's at the total disposal of his Lord. You see, Paul recognized that fundamentally, before he's the great apostle, he's the servant of the Messiah. He's the slave of Christ Jesus, his Lord, his master. Well, how about us? How about you? If, if we were describing ourselves, how long would it take before we described ourselves as a slave of Jesus Christ? How high would that be on our list? Do you fundamentally see yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ, devoted to Him at His total disposal, to willingly do whatever He wants? We're all challenged to the same service as Paul. We're five words into the letter of Romans. And we're already greatly challenged to rethink and evaluate, to, to see how our fundamental connection to Jesus as servant, as slave. The next phrase Paul uses to describe himself is called to be an apostle. Called is a great word, an important word in the Bible. In just a few short verses, if you look down to verses 6 and 7, you see that Paul uses this same word as being called to Christ, called to be saints. Every true believer is called by God. Because you see, the point of the calling is not who receives it, but who makes it. God makes the call. God calls us to Christ. God calls us to salvation to be saints. And God has called Paul to be an apostle. The term apostle simply means sent one, a, a messenger, one sent with a message. In many ways, we're all small a apostles. We're all sent ones on the message of Jesus Christ. But Paul's emphasizing something more specific here, more specific to him that he is a called apostle. God called him. God chose him specifically. God singled Paul out to be a capital A apostle. God chose Paul to be part of the limited founding group of apostles, numbering just 13. Those 13 are the only capital A apostles. There were the original 12 with Matthias, 
uh, replacing Judas, and then Paul. These 13 Christ chose, and Christ commissioned to authoritatively proclaim the gospel and to lead the early church. These 13 all encountered the risen Christ. Paul later than the rest, of course, but on that road to Damascus in Acts 19, it describes his encounter with the risen Lord. Verse 15 describes Christ's commissioning, where it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. In Galatians 1.1, Paul says of himself, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul in Romans 13.11 calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul had this very specific calling of God. He was called to be a capital A apostle and build the very foundation of the church. Have you ever thought that we have a specific calling from God as well? That you have a calling from God? Now we often talk about calling in relation to full-time Christian service. But God's calling isn't limited to paid professional staff. It's an important point for us to understand. God has specific ways that he wants to use you in your life, in his service. What skills and abilities, what experiences and training do you have? God wants to use you. Do you know your calling? Do you know what what God has put together in your life and called you to? Are you following your calling? Maybe your calling is right now your profession. Or maybe your calling is your, your life situation. Whatever it is, we need to know our calling and to do it. We are challenged to the same summons of God to a calling for him. The next part of the phrase is set apart for the gospel. The same word used set apart here is used in the Septuagint in Leviticus 20.26 of separating out Israel from among the nations. It's used in Acts 13.2 of setting apart Barnabas and Paul for missionary service. Paul's calling was as an apostle, but his commissioning his charge, his assignment. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is claiming here that he is totally dedicated to God's act of salvation in Christ, both personally in his own beliefs and in his own obedience to Christ and as well as apostolic proclamation of the gospel. If there's one word that defined Paul's personal life And his service, it's the gospel. God's act of salvation in Christ. And then his response to the gospel. We will see the fullness of the gospel so wonderfully displayed for us throughout the book of Romans. Have you ever thought of your life, your whole life, as being set apart for the gospel? This isn't just a set-apartness 
for Paul. This is a set-apartness for us all. Your personal life, your beliefs and obedience to the gospel set apart. Your service in living and sharing the gospel set apart your whole life. You see, we are challenged to the same set-apartness as Paul. We are set apart for the gospel of God. So think about this. You can take that very first sentence there of, of Romans and you can rewrite it about you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Brian, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a pastor, set apart for the gospel of God. Bill, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a teacher, set apart for the gospel of God. Rose, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a grandmother, set apart for the gospel of God. Vinny, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be a student, set apart for the gospel of God. On the back of our bulletin is a place where you can spend some time to think and to pray and to fill out, to fill in your own name, to fill in God's present calling of your life, be it your profession or your situation in life, to think about it and then pray about it. Because each of us here should be able to fill in that sentence. For we are all called, challenged, to the same service as Paul. We are all challenged to the same summons of God, a calling upon our life. And we are all called to the same separation, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's pray together. Father, now as we are challenged by this thought that this same sentence that Paul wrote is a sentence that should be true for us and our lives and what you're doing for us. That we're to be a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave devoted solely in obedience, willful to him. That we're called to specific duties in our lives, maybe a profession, maybe our life situation that you've called us into that to serve you and then that we're to be set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart in our own hearts and lives in obedience to gospel and then in the service of the gospel itself. Lord, this, this truth May you challenge us. May you change us today. In Jesus' name, amen.